quick warning. This episode features descriptions of violence and of sexual assault. If that's something that is triggering to you, or something you'd rather avoid, you might want to skip this episode. Yarn Yarn 23 Ladies and gentlemen of the jury What's the matter with you guys? You're letting them slip through our fingers! Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? You cut it. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. Shut up! You're a sadist! Twelve men turned into twelve clawing animals. That was a clip from the 1957 film, Twelve Angry Men. It's what I imagine when I think about the goings-on inside a jury room. I've never been on a jury, so films and TV are all I have to go on. I'm probably not that different to most people in that way. Only a chosen few end up serving on a jury. In 2019, almost 42,000 people were asked to serve on a jury in Ireland. Almost 34,000 of those people were either excused or no-shows, leaving 8,000 individuals who actually served on at least one trial that year. By my maths, that's 0.16% of the Irish population. I wanted to see the inside of this secretive world and get a sense of what it feels like to serve. I talked to seven former jurors about their seven separate trials. Yeah, it was a, it was a manslaughter case. And, uh... The case was actually a rape case. It was a stabbing. It was like a sexual assault case, a kind of a he said, she said situation. I also talked to a practicing criminal law barrister for his thoughts on the jury system. Any jurors I speak to afterwards, and then I know the people that they're talking about, they seem to be very observant and they get it spot on in relation to how they perceive barristers to be. And it's, it's just interesting hearing their stories. We'll explore the selection process. But the judge just simply said, well, that doesn't excuse you. Like that's not a valid excuse. And which shocked us, I guess, even more. The characters in the courtroom I don't know if they teach that at uh, barrister school. <laughs> There's a job on Broadway for all of them, definitely. The atmosphere in the jury deliberation room. We had been at sort of five, six with one undecided for a really long time, but I felt that the people who were in favor of acquittal were definitely kind of louder and brasher. And we'll do a deep dive into a few cases and hear them told from a juror's perspective in their own words. The initial reaction of couple of people was, oh, he had to have done it. But then you hear the other side of the story. I'll ask our jurors if they think justice was done in each of their trials. I'll ask if they were happy with the part they played and if they think the jury system works. Having gone through the process, I would probably worry if I was in the situation of having my fate decided in that way. Most of our jurors wanted to stay anonymous, so I won't be using their names and none of the cases I feature will contain information that could identify anyone involved. So where should we begin? How about a quick history lesson on how the jury system evolved into the one we use in Ireland today? The use of juries dates all the way back to England during the reign of Henry II. This is where we first hear of a concept of a 12-man jury and it was originally to arbitrate land disputes. In 1166, Henry extended its use to include criminal trials. Despite the name, this jury performed a vastly different function than the modern jury. 
a judge would travel around his area or circuit. When he rode into town, he'd form a pop-up court. Twelve free men from the area were summoned, and they were asked to tell the judge of any serious crimes that they knew of that had occurred since he was last here. Then anyone the jurors had accused were rounded up and put on trial. This later morphed into what was called a grand jury. Twenty-three local men, likely to know the circumstances of a crime, were engaged as a fact-finding band of investigators. They would assemble at court, pool their knowledge and present the charges and the evidence. A smaller 12-man group, called the Petit Jury, would then hear the evidence at trial and determine guilt. It's this bit that has endured in England ever since. The right to be judged by your equals was written into the Magna Carta in 1215. That's the closest thing Britain has to a written constitution. When Ireland broke away and became its own free state, trial by jury of your peers was written into our constitution. Here's our barrister, Mr Seamus Clark, SC. Yeah, so there's a constitutional requirement that all trials are by way of jury trial, except for three specific, specific types of cases. Um, one of them being minor offences, um, and they're tried in the district court. And then military tribunals, and then courts that are made of special courts that are, um, for example, the special criminal court is an example of that brought in by emergency legislation. But apart from those exceptions, the constitution mandates that all trials are to be dealt with by way of jury trial. And in Ireland, that is a, a unique context because it is really looking back at what happened in the 18th and 19th centuries when there was disgruntlement with the way in which trials were conducted in Ireland. So therefore, it was felt that because we were colonial uh, outpost, um, it was felt that the justice that we were getting wasn't really fair justice. Uh, if you think about property holders being the jurors of the day in the 18th and 19th centuries, the feeling was by those who were writing the constitution that it would be representative and fairer if there were jury trials and less unjust decisions if jury trials took place in Ireland. So it was mandated in the constitution and we've had it ever since. And, and it's interesting because even though in the constitution they mandated jury trial, they still had the same, you know, it was, you had to be a property owner, uh, effectively up until 1976 very few women ever served on a jury because they were they could be excused so they could say they didn't want to serve in the jury and they were exempt um but they did, but they could they were they weren't excluded completely but they were exempt from from being jurors so even though we were starting off as a new fresh nation there was a lot of inherent difficulties with jury trials even up until the 1970s because it wasn't really truly representative because there were no women on the juries you know, it took a while for us to work out ourselves what the constitutional requirement was for a jury trial. Really, the, the, the purpose of a trial by a jury is to make sure somebody gets a fair trial. And you get a fair trial if you have a reasonable cross-section of the public acting as the jury pool. If you think about it from a common sense point of view, the more representative the jury trial is, the more likely the public would be happy with it and that it will continue on. And what's the obsession with 12 people about? Why is it always that number? You know, with 12 people deciding a case, as opposed to, say, one, you're eliminating a prejudice or a bias that might be in an individual person, but that might be not representative of the general public. Uh, so that's good. And then 12 is a good number as well, because it's not so, so small of a number, like, say, four or five, where you could still have those prejudices. Is, you know, you could have a small cross-section of society deciding a case unfairly. And 12 is not so big that it's unruly. Like, can you imagine 50 people on a jury? You know, you know, it'd be very hard to get everybody to agree to be unanimous. But 12 is, 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 you know, big enough for it to be unanimous as well. 
during the emergency in 1939 to 1945, the circuit court operated with seven jurors rather than 12. And that was because they couldn't get petrol and gas into the country. So people weren't able to travel. Um, so it was really, that was the main reason why they reduced it down to seven rather than 12. And they only reduced it for the circuit court, not for the central criminal court, which continued with 12 jurors. But outside of that, it's always been 12 jurors. And in Scotland, it's 15 jurors, not 12. You'll hear more of Mr. Clark as we proceed. Jury duty starts for everyone in the same way. The letter through the door, the jury call. To be eligible, you have to be an Irish citizen, aged over 18, and be on the register of electors. For our two youngest jurors, they got called practically as soon as they were eligible. I pretty much got asked to do it. I was quite young after 18, you know. I thought it was kind of like a very fun game of probability, like, you know. I got picked, like, almost immediately after I turned 18. It was genuinely a week after my 18th birthday. So I think you, obviously, you know, I was just a real keen little nerd. And I think I probably registered to vote super quickly. And so I was just in the pool and I was eligible for one week and then I got called up. Once you get your start date and you arrive at the courthouse, the next step is jury selection. The, 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 the court that I was in, the holding area is like a kind of a person pen, uh, a mixture between like a school and airport and like an adult crash. They lay on puzzles and books uh, because a lot of actually the experience is not doing cases, it's waiting to be selected for a case. You're there with about 200, 250 people maybe. Um, for a week, you go in on the Monday morning. Um, and then it's basically just a lot of waiting around. So everybody's got their number. Anytime a case is moving forward to jury selection, a TV pops on in, in the corner. It's a judge in one of the courtrooms. They read out um, the charge sheet, identify the defendant for purposes of, you know, if, if, if you're familiar with, with uh, the case or the person or, or, or anybody associated with it. Um, and then they basically do a bingo draw of, of numbers. Um. So it could happen on the first day you were there, or you could sit, you could arrive on the first day and sit in this room and not have your name called at all and go home at the end of the day, having not participated in anything. When you're sitting there, you have to you speak to these, you know, all the other people there, and uh, yeah, you get the vibe that many of them um, would rather be anywhere else than sitting in this waiting room uh, to be chosen to be on the part of a jury. So, um... <laughs> and then when you hear your number called, you have to go straight away to that courtroom. You know, you're going from a situation where you're just in drinking tea, eating biscuits with all these kind of people. It's all kind of this experience and it's all kind of nice and cordial. And then suddenly you're in a, a proper courtroom. You've got a judge. You've got, uh, you know, uh, everybody there representing people, people wearing wigs. You know, you've got a defendant there in the dock and it's it's very serious very, very quickly. So, yeah, it's very, it happens very, very quickly. A jury can be selected very, very quickly and then suddenly 12 people are there. And Mr. Clark, I see. You know, Judge Carney in the Central Criminal Court when he was presiding over that court, he used to always say it's a last chance saloon, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Um, you know, are you, are, you, are you going to stick with this for the whole week? You know, can you, can you stick with this case for two weeks? And it's your last chance now to get out, you know? Because um, some people are kind of shy. And when they're called down, it happens so quickly, they don't say, well, actually, I'm supposed to go in somewhere next week. I have a flight booked. And so Judge Carney is always going to last chance saloon. Is there anyone here who cannot serve on this jury for the next two weeks? And occasionally you'd have somebody sheepishly say, well, actually, I have a, you know, <laughs> a problem next week. 
there were a number of people as well who had um, approached the bench to speak to the judge about specific reasons why they they wouldn't um, um, be able to to serve, and the judge had outlined that as well before uh, starting the swearing-in process. You know, they, they were had a holiday booked. I think was a common one, um, and or you know if if you know if they knew the defendant or anybody involved in the case um, was was another one that the judge outlined. Uh, yeah, a lot of people they said like you know I can't t- I I don't have the time with the kids and all this stuff, and he's like I find 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 he was like really like <laughs> accommodating of people, and I went up and I was like. I was genuinely curious to do it, you know, so I actually wanted to do it. So I was like, um, yeah, I'm in, you know, I'm in, count me in. I was like, I don't know, like, I mean, you know, sure, sure, put like a young, a young guy who has no fucking clue about anything on the jury. There was one gentleman, though, who um, kind of surprised us all. He went up at this point. We, we, we knew what the what the case was. So we knew it was a, a sexual assault case of, of a minor. Um, we knew it was historical. We knew where it happened and the defendant's name just through the 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 the, the charges been read out. Um, so we kind of we knew that that was the nature of the case. And I think this this gentleman then who who'd been selected, he 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 approaches the bench, and we can all hear because it's very very quiet in the, the courtroom. And he says, "Judge, I don't think I can try this case in good conscience uh, because I myself am guilty of a lot of the crimes that this man here." has been accused of today and I've never been caught and, and nobody's ever brought it up. Um, but just for my own conscience, given that I've done this, I don't think that I'd be able to, to try this man. Like we were all taken aback. I don't think anybody was jumping to, Oh, he must've made that up to, to get out. I mean, in, in retrospect, perhaps it's an interesting tactic maybe, but I mean, we we all certainly yeah, believed it in that moment, and it again was just another kind of sobering moment in the courtroom where we're we're kind of like, what what should happen now? Because uh, like to us, like this man is just admitting to to doing crimes that somebody is going to be on trial for. Um, but the judge just simply said, "Well, that doesn't excuse you. Like that's not a valid excuse." And which shocked us, I guess, even more um, that, that 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 wasn't going to be taken. And again, maybe that 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 is a, a known tactic, and you heard it before. But that was um, that was what was said. So, but I, I think he did say, you know, that either side are still open to use their challenges, which we took as a as a nod because you know I think somebody I can't remember which side immediately challenged him as well. So he he, he left. So it was kind of he you know. He, he, he got his wish in the end anyway. Because we have these peremptory challenges, seven peremptory challenges, where you don't have to give a reason why you're objecting to somebody being on the jury. And the prosecution gets seven and the defense gets seven. All they have as information is the name of the person, their address and their occupation. And what they look like. And from that, a solicitor usually decides who to object to and who to leave on the jury. Generally, that's left to the solicitor. So at the courtroom, there would be a list of the jury pool numbered, say, one to 300, one to 400. And they take down the number that's being called by the registrar in the courtroom. They make the decision as to who to select or not. Now, obviously, a barrister can object as well and take on that role. But generally, that role is left at the solicitor in the courtroom to decide who or not. And sometimes there would be discussion as to what type of jurors do you want. Um, You might decide as a team that it would be better for the type of case that it is to have you know, maybe more women than, than men, 
more younger people than older people. Um, older people tend to be more conservative. So you're, you're, you're using generalizations in order to work out who might be the best person. I definitely think that there was a certain amount of kind of dressing super middle class going on because that's the tip you get is kind of like go in in a pinstripe suit with a copy of the Irish Times under your elbow or whatever. Isn't it like a kind of a stereotypical thing that they don't want is people who seem apparently middle class people are much more likely to convict. I mean, I don't know if that's true. You can never really tell how much of any of this stuff is just kind of stereotyping or whatever. But A barrister, Mr. Clark, thinks he might know the origins of this rumour. There was a study done in, or actually there was a, a book called, I think, I can't remember, I think the Outlines of Criminal Law by Kenny back in the 60s, where he makes a comment um, that if you don't want somebody to be on your jury and you're for the, def- if, if you don't want to be on a jury and you are, um, you, you're trying to get out of it, that if you wear a necktie, <laughs> that you would be, the, the defence won't want you on the jury, you know. So there's these little prejudices and people talk about if somebody's carrying the Irish Independent or the Irish Times under their arm, you know, they're less likely to be uh, kept on the jury because the defence want to have them excluded from it. Oh, that's so funny because I think I, I definitely assumed it was true and I knew that I just kind of had no hope in hell anyway because you're, you're 18. I think you, you're never going to look like a serious professional at the age of 18, are you, anyway? It's all probably making no difference in the overall context of things, but people try to make educated guesses as to who might be the best person to have on the jury. There would be certain cases where you might say it might be better to have a good gender mix or, I mean, there'd be, ter- there'd be a time, uh, the only time I'd ever intercept where just because there's a lottery of things, it seems like a lot of men are being on the jury or a lot of women are on the jury. And as a barrister, you like to have a little bit of a broad mix. Um, and you might just say to the, to the solicitor and um, maybe just object to some of the men so we can get a bit more of a balance here. Because sometimes only two would be used up or three would be used up and there'd be another four objections that are there. And rather than not using them, try and use it a little bit to your advantage if you can. And then you get your 12 people and off you go. When the jury has been selected, their first task is to choose the foreperson. They act as an informal chairperson or spokesperson for the jury. They will submit any questions or clarifications to the judge and will read out the verdict at the end of the trial. I was wondering how did our jurors select this person and what type of character suits the job? Yeah, well, they send you in and they ask you to pick one. And then, you know, you just look around the room and like, you know, then there's the guy, you know, you can just, everyone's kind of looking at the same person eventually. And, uh, and he kind of wanted to do it as well, I think. He had a, he had a, like a nice temperament. He didn't get tongue-tied at all speaking in front of people he never met before. It wasn't like a, an election campaign or anything. And then that's, that's how it works kind of thing. It's just, uh, it's probably the same way of, like a dog uh, pack works. <laughs> They came around with a form and asked oh, the person who puts who, the person who you want to be the four person put your name at number one, and they just handed the sheet to the woman that was in front of them, and she just started writing down her name, and we kind of went, oh, are you are you do you want to be the four four woman? And she went, oh, sorry, wait, what? <laughs> kind of, I think she, I know, and then she said, oh yeah, like I'm I'm up for doing it, so I. I don't know whether she, you know, really wanted to and just sort of took the lead or if she didn't quite realise that she was, you know, nominating herself, but everyone else was happy enough with that. So in one, in one of the cases, I, t- I took it upon myself to do it. And I'm not, I don't, I don't really see myself as that personality, really. But I guess you, you, you judge it with, with the other characters that you can see in the room. And you, I felt in that instance that there probably wasn't anyone else suitable enough to kind of uh, take the role. So... 
I kind of reluctantly uh, did it myself. So that's what is also really interesting then when you get into the, the cases, because you've got suddenly got this insight into your own community to things that you had no idea about, these people, these places, these goings on. It's almost like you're peering into this kind of part of your uh, community that you didn't know about at all. So that's fascinating in itself. It's, it's kind of another world on your doorstep um, that you're discovering. The idea is that you get justice that's, you know, local justice from your own area. So for example, if you're, as really, it's in, the, in a circuit court trial, it would be your circuit. And the country is divided into eight circuits. To be honest, there was nothing unusual about, about any of us. We were all of a, I suppose, a similar age. You know, there was nobody very young. No, by very young, I mean in their 20s. And there was nobody very old. I'd say like it did, it probably reflected the, you know, population uh, demographics on the macro level, you know. Probably a bit of a microcosm. There was, I think, a fairly even split. I think, uh, yeah, fairly even split of men and women. I think almost everyone was white. I think there might have been one person who wasn't white and Irish, like ethnically Irish. Now that you've met our jurors, let's take a deeper look into some of their trials and the decisions they were being asked to make. I've selected five different cases. Each is described by one of our jurors. I think it's important to let each juror tell their story uninterrupted and let them express their personal thoughts and feelings, but I also think it's important to say that this is just one person's interpretation of the events, so it's not the whole story by any means. So here's case number one. The case was actually a rape case, and it went on, it went on for about a week. There, there, there were two charges. The, the first charge was rape. The second charge was sodomy. It transpired that what happened or what supposedly, supposedly happened was that there was this girl at a nightclub and she left the nightclub and this fella followed her and attacked her in a, a bit of a wooded area a short distance away from the nightclub. There was witness testimony um, from the girl involved herself, from the, the person that was accused. I suppose he, he was in his early 20s. He was, for want of a better word, I'd say maybe working class, you know, like no, not nothing special about either. She wasn't a a real dressed up Dolly Parton, if, if you know what I mean. And he he was in he wasn't in a suit. He was in a sort of casual jacket and trousers and an open neck short, you know. So he wasn't sort of dressed up to to be the. The businessman's son that couldn't do any wrong, if you know. There were two witnesses that didn't actually see what happened, but came across maybe her shouting or him shouting and so on and so forth. Now, it, it may not seem a lot, but 
when these people were, were questioned at length, it did actually take that length of time. And I mean, you can, you can see why a court case does take a long time. The guards involved came up and said, gave evidence of having arrested the person on a particular time at a particular day and was taken to uh, the Garda station and the charge was put to him. And his reply was, and such and such and such. Like the guard's evidence, in, in most cases, the guard's evidence is just factual as what, unless, you know, it's, it's, it's an awful lot deeper and they've done a lot of investigation. But um, th there was nothing. And all of the time, uh, if there was any little slight discrepancy, the uh, prosecutor or the defense would say, uh, object uh, such and such, that's not the question you were asked, or, you know, they're very, very finicky. Prosecution witnesses or uh, defense witnesses, none of them appear to be totally truthful, if you know what I mean. And it's probably not unusual, but it seemed that some people were putting their own stress and their own emphasis on, on things. And you sort of get a feel for that, you know. The, the first story you hear is the prosecution story. Like the defense doesn't come in till basically after the prosecution. And like the initial reaction of a couple of people was, oh, he had to have done it. But then you hear the other side of the story. It was obvious that something happened. But, you know, the, based on everything, the people that were supposedly witnessed the situation under cross-examining, they, they sort of heard something from down the street. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't clear-cut. There was no bodily evidence that, of any type, that a rape had taken place. You know, whether down in a country place that they actually did any testing, and I, I don't think they did. No, in saying that, well, maybe they did, but that wasn't put forward. You know, there was no evidence on the clothing that uh, a rape had taken place. And that the other stuff that came in, were the people drinking and all that sort of, you know, did they usually frequent this place? Stuff that you mightn't think of straight off, but they went into everything in, in great detail. But it's really on the last day whereby the two barristers give their, their summing up points and then the judge he gave a synopsis of the case and he explained the law and you that you had to be certain in your own mind that you know the decision you came to was based on only what you heard in the court no mention was was made of any previous conviction or any previous knowledge of the guards of this fella and he tells you basically, I am not here to, 
to say that the person is guilty or innocent. That's your job within this criteria. Then you retire to the jury room. The, the first thing, you have a bit of a discussion and then say all those who think he should be convicted, you know, put up the hand and all those who think he shouldn't, then you sort of go and say, uh, well, Mary, why do you think he should be convicted? And such and so, and then so on, and then, and somebody will give a point. And then if somebody has something to refute that point, but people weren't looking at, at a reasonable doubt from a, a point of law. A lot of them were looking at it from their own feeling, you know, I think he did it. And they say, but did he prove beyond all reasonable doubt? Are you sure? Um, no, not really. You know, after a discussion like that, it's more likely than not that we can't be sure. And, you know, that's a reasonable doubt. And that's what, that's it. The evidence didn't didn't go up to the the criteria of reasonable of beyond reasonable doubt. Like at the end of the day, we did get a unanimous verdict. We acquitted the um, the defendant. I think some of that was possibly down to me, because I reckon that the um, director of public prosecution didn't charge him with the right charge. I think he should. He would have been convicted of um, sexual assault, but the evidence wasn't strong enough for either of the other two charges. I, I reckon there was an assault there, but not a, not as like a rape is a conviction for rape is a very serious offence. You can't if he's not charged with that. You can't turn around and say it's not like. In a murder case where you say, no, not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter, you know, you, you can't turn around and say he's guilty of sexual assault because he hasn't been charged with it. But the reaction from the prosecution uh, barrister was not, was not good. She, she was looking daggers at the jury. But, uh, and you don't get a chance to, to talk to them. Like, I was quite prepared to go up to her and tell her, you know, this is where you, you cocked up. Case number one ended in a unanimous verdict of not guilty on both counts. I think it's worth noting that the vast majority of rape charges in Ireland end without prosecution. In 2019, 2,747 rapes were reported to the Gardaí in Ireland. Out of those 2,747 reported rapes, 1,612 of those incidents were charged. That's about 59%. And out of those 1,612, 124 ended in prosecution. That's about 14%. But the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre even estimates that 90% of the 
of rape victims do not report such crimes at all. Let's move on to our second case and our next juror. It was a stabbing. So um, there had been a party and I think this guy, the guy who stabbed the, the stabber, uh, the defendant, sorry, technical term there. Uh, uh, the, <laughs> the defendant had sort of shown up halfway through and I think being a bit belligerent and um, kind of started trying to have a fight with somebody in any way that ended in him stabbing this other guy. Yeah, the judge, I think, certainly explains to you exactly what the charge means um, so that you're very clear of exactly what you're considering as a jury. We had to be clear that there had been intent to stab. Um, so that was kind of the crux of the did we as a jury think that the defendant had had wanted to stab the victim of the crime? I think we heard evidence for about one and a half days. And then on the second day, we deliberated. There were several witnesses. There was obviously the defendant himself took the stand. Um, the guy who was stabbed took the stand. His girlfriend took the stand. But then there were some doctors were called. Both sides had a medical witness. They were sort of medical experts. So they were there to talk about the nature of the wound. The lawyer for the prosecution, I think, was definitely trying to make the argument. I think, I think that he had called that medical witness because he wanted to argue that the wound had been inflicted very deliberately because it was a deep wound um, and it was a neat wound. So that's a sort of, you would think, might demonstrate uh, kind of a clean stabbing motion rather than somebody walking into a knife and it kind of slipping and sliding all over the place. Um, but he didn't really kind of make that argument coherently. He didn't kind of link up the medical um, evidence. And he didn't ask the medical doctor what he thought either. But perhaps, I mean, perhaps he thought that he couldn't quite get the medical expert to say oh, this type of wound is deliberate and this kind isn't. Maybe he thought that was too speculative. So he was just trying to plant the idea in our heads and I was the only one whose head he successfully planted it in. The defendant and his lawyer were trying to argue that the wound had been inflicted by accident. So it was kind of a case of, it kind of reminded me of that bit in The Simpsons of like, I'm just going to keep punching the air. And if you happen to walk into my arms, then... It's not my fault if you get punched. And it was kind of a similar argument. It was like, I sort of walked towards him with a knife. It's not my fault that he kind of walked onto it. It was literally, honestly, not more sophisticated than that as an argument. I'm not doing a disservice here, do you know? I mean, I, I thought it was pretty ridiculous. To me, it's like beyond a reasonable doubt that, I'm sorry, like people just don't, don't, don't fall onto knives that are being brandished at them, you know? The defendant, I think, was very well advised um, because he turned up to court in a suit looking very smart. I don't know if he'd gotten a haircut the day before, but he had that vibe and he was very um, coherent and articulate on the stand. I think he pre prepared with his lawyer. He definitely did well. Whereas unfortunately the victim um, was, I think, heroin addict and was quite clearly high while on the stand which was yeah very unfortunate because I think it 
prejudice to the jury against him. I came away for sure convinced that the fact that the victim was a heroin addict very, very much influenced a lot of people's thinking. I think they felt they couldn't trust what he said. And in fairness, he wasn't particularly coherent on the stand because he was high. You know, he did stick to his gun, but he had been stabbed. And his girlfriend, who also gave evidence, said the same thing. She was also high on the stand. I think a lot of people on the jury seemed to feel that they were inherently untrustworthy because they were addicts. The way that I looked at it was very much, I wanted to understand what the crime using charge with meant. And then I wanted to understand whether I thought he was guilty of it. I don't think that everyone saw it in those terms. I think some people saw it kind of more black and white of who is right and who's wrong in their way of looking at it. I think there were some people who didn't think that the crime was very serious um, or that it merited harsh punishment, um, merited, you know, they, they didn't want to see the guy go to prison for what they thought wasn't a serious offence. One thing that I can remember very clearly being said is I once bottled a lad on a night out, should I go to prison? Like, yeah, mate, you probably should. Bottling someone is an extremely dangerous thing to do, you know. I do remember clearly trying to argue, what did everyone think about the wound? I think it showed intent. Um, and I definitely argued, as did a good number of my fellow jurors, that sorry, people don't just fall onto knives. Like the guy clearly intended to stab him. But yeah, there were certain people who I think just thought it wasn't that big of a deal. And then there was a good load of other people who kind of thought, well, I just can't say beyond a reasonable doubt that the guy didn't fall onto the knife. Um, they felt that they couldn't be sure that that hadn't happened. I think they felt that the, a crime like that against an addict wasn't as serious as a crime against another person. I'm pretty sure as people did say things to the effect of, he's just a junkie. And that left me feeling pretty bummed out. And the other thing that really bummed me out is that the whole time, because I was 18, like nobody listened to me at all, which like, I mean, to be fair, I don't know. I might, I might be the same now, to be honest. I hope I wouldn't be. But like, do you know, when I tried to say, well, what does everyone think about the medical evidence? Like there was no point in me trying to contribute because everyone was just like, Ash's only 18, what does she know? There were people at the table who were trying to understand what does this charge mean? Like, what was the evidence? They were reviewing their notes. They were really trying to kind of put their brain power behind it. But there were just a lot of people who were really just kind of seeing it as like, oh, what do I think? Do you know, like, what's my, what's my kind of feeling here? You know, then just kind of became more and more entrenched in their initial instinct as it went on seeing people do that was a bit disappointing because you kind of you want it to be you want people to really consider things like objectively and thoroughly and to really kind of yeah to take it as seriously as it should be taken and I don't think people were doing that I don't think everyone was doing that by any means 
it's obvious on TV, everyone understands exactly what's being asked. And they're asking intelligent questions about the evidence. And, you know, one of the jurors manages to actually like find the key to the case or something like a thing. And, you know, but it's not that at all. Like it's, or in my experience, it wasn't, but that's only, that's only one experience. And I really hope that other people's are a bit more positive. Our jury was thrown out because we couldn't come to a conclusion, but there we were in a, we were seven, five, five guilty, seven, not guilty. And I really think that that ratio would have been different if the defendant and the victim had been switched. When we, we got to five, seven, we had been at sort of five, six with one undecided for a really long time. And then eventually but I felt that the people who were in favor of acquittal were definitely kind of louder and brasher. And I thought that there was some kind of not quite shouting down going on, but just some kind of slightly aggressive communication happening. And I do think that because then we went into the in again, because I think they were just sick of letting us argue it out. And the judge said, oh, I'm dismissing you. And I felt very relieved because I thought that actually over time, those other guys would have convinced the people who wanted to convict that we were wrong. I had a sense that if I'd stayed there longer, I would have gotten shouted down somehow or other. And I was very glad that I didn't get shouted down because I was glad to know that I'd walked away and kind of done my best and done what I thought was right. I mean, I guess the good thing is, you know, at least to me, at least we were dismissed rather than rather than letting a guy off. So trial number two was a hung jury and the case was dismissed. I asked Mr. Clark, is it frustrating to barristers and judges when this happens? That's one of the cons of a jury trial is that sometimes trials collapse and you know, all those days have been wasted and you have to go back to scratch and start a jury trial again. You know, the, any, any system that's based on a lottery where 12 random people are selected and you don't really know much about those people, it's going to throw up from time to time surprises. Often judges even say when they're charging a jury that, you know, I've been hearing cases for so long now that I'm almost weary from hearing cases and you bring a fresh perspective to this case and you will listen to the case and you make findings of fact so it's using their common sense as to what has happened in the case and that's the benefit of a jury trial let's take a look inside the next courtroom here's trial number three it's like a sexual assault case a kind of a he said she said situation yeah it was kind of well the story as described so what was uh, what was alleged let's say it was kind of grim, actually. It was like this. It was like this uh, couple. I'd say they were probably. I want to say they're in their forties now, but that's just relatively at that age. They seem much older than me. So I'm just. I'm just like picking. Maybe they were in their thirty. Maybe they were younger than I am now. You know. But uh, either way, they they were uh, older than me than I was at the time, and they had kids, and they were like split up. She said so. She was like, accusing him of sexual assault obviously well not obviously but <laughs> you know you might have you might have you might have guessed that he was alleged to have come over to where she was living with the kids and he wasn't living there at the time and then he wanted to come in the house she told him he couldn't come in the house and then he sort of molested her 
he started apparently and he was drunk i think is also what she was saying and then well that's what she and then that was basically what happened you know um it wasn't like um it was sort of a groping situation so it was alleged it wasn't um like uh actual like intercourse groping with hands like well like you know through clothes basically uh, so that was what was uh, what he was accused of, yeah. And then he was there to uh, defend himself, obviously. There was a few witnesses. There was a guard. There was, I mean, the guard couldn't really tell you anything that, you know, because like it's just it really was a he said she said situation. So like the guard just shows up and it was like all he could really say in his name was like yeah she was in a state of distress and and I think the guy had left by then so he he pretty much got out of there. Yeah, well, they they both went up on the stand and were, I think, cross-examined. Um, the defense side, they they raised questions as to why she didn't go for a rape kit uh, uh, until like two weeks later or something. And they were like, why why would you wait so long? Because apparently she said that it's happened before, and so she and they were saying like, you know, you should have known. You know, you need to go as quickly as possible. To get these rape kits done to in order to she claimed basically he like grabbed grabbed her um vagina that's not what she said though <laughs> apparently like uh, there was some attempt that he tried to like penetrate or something with his hand and uh so they were saying like well you should have gone to get the rape kit and then they were asking her like why she didn't just trying to bring just bring like you know like like you would uh, you bring everything into question you know on her side, she just had the accusation. She didn't really bring anything extra. I guess that's normal. I guess normal. The defense has to be the creative, imaginative side, maybe, because they like laid into her like pretty heavily. Like it was, it was kind of brutal at times. Like uh, because the, you know they, they that's why they brought in this social worker guy because he, I think he might have been a principal or something. Anyway, like she apparently she had accused uh, like two or three other guys in the past of something similar. Uh, like she had accused a principal at her daughter's school of molesting her. She had uh, accused all this. So they're kind of bringing in to question whether or not she was like serially accusing people of sexual stuff to get what she wants out of them. They also brought in the doctor to discuss like the rape kit situation and, and, and you know, why, why did you wait so long to get the rape kit? And like, you know, she was kind of like, She's really like stuck for words up there. I mean, that when you know, when she she didn't do well uh, with those with that with the rape kit questions. Like she was like, uh, you know, she you know, you expect maybe just say, oh, I was just so so shook up, but she didn't even say that. She was like uh, saying just all sorts of nonsense stuff, kind of thing. Like it just it, it just she seemed very frivolous, you know. So yeah, she, she didn't really come off well. I guess it's all like when it's he says he says. So he said, she said it. It's all just like framing, right? It's all just like making the other side look really bad, basically. Yeah, she did um, pleadingly kind of look at us, as in like she was saying, saying something, something. And clearly, the uh, the the solicitors are just totally like deadpan, like just no reaction whatsoever, just just listening and basically uh, <laughs> trying to find just like not giving away anything and then so she's just when she's not getting that uh, emotional like signal back like you know pity me pity me 
from the barrister, then she's looking over to us, pity me, pity me, kind of kind of thing, you know, pleadingly kind of way, you know. Yeah, she basically her credibility was like she did not come off well on the stand. Like she came off as like very kind of insincere and, and very pleading and, and emotive, you know, not but not emotive in like a distressed kind of uh like you know reliving pain kind of way and kind of uh you know <laughs> you know things aren't going my way kind of way or something i don't know he i mean he he wasn't accusing anyone all he had to do all, he went up and he said i did do it and they brought up like they tried to bring up all this some stuff from his past but he's just like yeah but i didn't do this i mean i didn't do this <laughs> and that was it i mean they can't what else can you do you know he looks like a really rough guy so I mean, I remember the first time we went in, people were like, yeah, I think you probably did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like instantly. I was just like, yeah, I was like, yeah, no, I was like, yeah, man. I mean, everyone else saying he did it, maybe he did do it. Uh, I, yeah, he spent a lot less time on the stand-up. When she went up, she was up there for ages, like, and he was only, you, you, he went up first, I think, and yeah, he was only up there for a very short amount of time, by comparison. I spent most of the trial, like, thinking that he did it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, basically, just because, just basically because he was accused of doing it and he looked like he might have done it, you know? <laughs> I mean, completely unjust, really. According to what you said, like, there's no way on earth we can find this guy guilty. <laughs> Even if he did do it, you know? Uh, I, it was definitely the judge's explanation of how to judge the case for us uh, that uh, helped me a lot, like... Um, until then, I was kind of like, I wasn't, I was hearing all sides, but then I wasn't really putting it together into a, into, a, into like the proper thinking framework that you should have, the mindset that you should have. And so I benefit a lot from the judge's speech, I would say. And I think a lot of, probably a few people really uh, crystallized what they thought. And then that sort of had probably a snowball effect because you certainly suddenly had like a group of people who had a very firm belief. I mean, there was some, the funny thing was, was the gender dynamic, actually. It was a funny thing. It was all the women really thought he'd done it, the strongest. And all the guys were like, you know, he might have done it, but, you know, he's still not guilty because there's no proof. There's not enough, there's not sufficient kind of proof that he did it. There's a few, um, there's a few uh, of the older women, actually, were uh, more on the, side of the more on the like not guilty side i think that was sort of a maybe a thin end of the wedge to break the uh female solidarity <laughs> but uh yeah so yeah i remember i remember i remember thinking it was uh, kind of st striking actually how you know it's like <laughs> all the people saying you did it are all the women <laughs> uh yeah there was there there was a woman who um brought up like a, a time i think her, she's saying her sister was like sexually assaulted that doesn't affect this case though, <laughs> you know? But yeah, she did bring it up saying like it had the circumstances were similar and all this and, and he got away with it kind of thing. And uh, yeah, at the end, I think it took like an hour maybe, ultimately. Uh, I was found, uh, you know, not guilty of doing it. So it was pretty much unanimous actually um, at that point, yeah. Yeah, you know, total like total revert, total flip like flip the script kind of thing from the start to the end. Actually, there was the yeah the woman who was going it was her it was her sister she was talking about she um, wasn't happy really 
she kind of like uh she was like sitting at the oh yeah i remember she was like sitting at the table kind of like uh you know looking sad for herself and defeated basically um so yeah i still don't know if he did it or not but uh as i said uh you can't really say you can't find someone guilty if there's no like proof you know or there's not there was no evidence i mean she if she had gone for the rape kit might have changed everything i don't know Our third trial also ends in a not guilty verdict. I'm starting to think it's quite difficult for prosecutors to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a phrase that our jurors have mentioned over and over again. So I asked Mr. Clark what it actually means. Cases dependent on the prosecution proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And if there is a doubt based on the evidence in the case, and it's a doubt that's reasonable on the evidence, um, that's all you have to point to as a defence barrister to get an acquittal. Um, so it doesn't mean that the person is not guilty. It just means that on the evidence put forward by the prosecution, that they haven't proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt and that the accused is entitled to the benefit of that doubt. Let's hear about our next trial, trial number four. Yeah, it was a, it was a manslaughter case and the, the accused was out for the evening with his partner and uh, they're on the way home and there was a kind of a row and the accused has got... Uh, a woman up against railings or whatever and he's being threatened and aggressive um some guy bystander um was worried for the for the lady in question and he just asks some people for some help from some from people falling out of a pub and just get away or whatever because this is my wife or this is my partner and it's nothing to do with you and it was just one punch i think so to speak but heavy heavy punch and yeah unfortunately yeah one of the one of the guys one of the guys died yeah the accused was just like it was like his whole thing was he was trying to defend himself but it just didn't weigh up when all the evidence was really there they didn't really evidence did cctv um it wasn't conclusive when i say that wasn't conclusive you could see you could see a punch being thrown but it, it was it was really really quite blurry and it, but you could see how quickly it happened the whole thing was that these three people were i don't think you could even one of them was a lady so you wouldn't even be intimidated as such by it it just didn't weigh up because they weren't running down from the pub if you know what i mean they were they just sought they were just asked to go down to see what was going on just the physicality of the the accused compared to a much when I say elderly gentleman who was just who wasn't going down to you know uh, to, to, to do anything really like that um, like I don't think they I don't even think they the three people in question were, were running up to him get away from him you know it was like they asked questions politely this is what this is what all the evidence was, you know, this is what the, the people who spoke in, in, in court said. He was pretty open and honest, the accused, to be honest with you, and um, he know he knew he did wrong. And But yeah, the guards, uh, he went and he, the next day or whatever, when, when, they, when they went to investigate him, he was open and honest with, with pretty much everything. From the defense, they'd show some of the scrapes he had on his, you know, skirmishes. But if that was... 
what he had compared to what you know the the victim had it, it was nothing you know it was you know if this was like a scratch and obviously because they i think one the, the girl who went up and i think the the boyfriend of the girl went up they were kind of trying to you know she had a bag and she was hitting them and stuff like that so that could have come in from that and then all of a sudden he just swung swung out and that was it that was the end of well that was the reason why we were there he, he had some sort of problems or issues and he was thinking of other things or something that evening and but that doesn't excuse the behavior you know what i mean but like the force of a punch you're not you're not going to go down easy it was quick rapid boom down you know and on the probably on the pavement which was unfortunate but still you know even with with alcohol or a lot of it consumed you still kind of know your own strength so to speak you know you still be able to you know if you're hitting somebody hard like there was a part show touring you could see he was uh when they were describing the I suppose the, the gory details and obviously people crying on the court and stuff you could see you could see his remorse and it felt bad a bit but you have to be black and white in these instances i think you know yeah because i think you just have to be responsible for your own actions really at the end of the day like it was pretty much unanimous the the way we were thinking um there was one one or two said one i think in particular was was saying it was uh he was defending himself and I think we just swayed her in the end because of all the keep looking at the CCTV footage and you know the the pictures of the you know and then and then I think she just came around in the end and yeah we came to the guilty decision in the end. Um, yeah, I was happy with it. I was happy with it, but again, again, part of me was going okay. It could have been a moment of madness, you know. Yeah, and, but listen, it's a moment of madness, but you've, you've 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 took someone's life, you know. So, yeah. Hmm. Trial number four ended in a verdict of guilty, and the defendant later served a sentence of six years in prison. Now let's hear our last case, trial number five. This one is a little more unusual in that both the prosecution and the defence were looking for the same verdict. So it was a murder charge, um, but I suppose with our case, it was maybe a little bit unique. They were going for a, a special verdict. So rather than, you know, she's guilty of murder or she's not guilty of murder, it was quite clear that she had committed the murder. But they, you know, the defense and the prosecution felt that it was a not guilty by reason of insanity. So that was quite unusual that there wasn't much contention over the facts. Um, and that's probably why it was such a short trial. You know, usually murder trials would, I presume, go over weeks. Um, but this was only in a couple of days because there wasn't that, you know, defense saying one thing and the prosecution saying the other. It was all pretty just a lot of agreement basically you know we kind of wondered okay why are we here but I suppose it's just for their process really because if you're gonna contend or you know say not guilty even if it's by reason of insanity you still need to have that trial um so yeah we did sometimes feel a little bit like why are we here 
the the witnesses mainly were like there were um you know Gardi who had interviewed the the accused uh shortly after it happened there were there was a guard just talking about kind of the mapping out of the area and one talking about pictures but the main evidence came from two psychiatrists who had met with her a number of times over um, three years they they provided the bulk of the evidence we didn't you know we heard about say people who were living in the same house or neighbors who provided cctv footage or we heard that they took pictures but they didn't show us the cctv they didn't show us you know any graphic photos which i was obviously really glad about they described the injuries and they read out the interview that she did with the guards but the problem with that was we later found out is that she you know was suffering really badly with psychoses and delusions and in her mind this person that she killed was a threat to her but even just listening to her statement to the guards it seemed quite incoherent and quite difficult to follow and I think that was a demonstration of how disordered her thoughts were um, so we heard that interview where we heard kind of her I suppose what rationale and her reasoning behind it but that wasn't grounded in reality there wasn't evidence for those those reasons that she had we heard about details of her uh the accused's delusions which involved the royal family so she thought that she was kind of possessed by princess diana and was um you know doing this to protect prince william um she thought that kate middleton was involved you know and these names were mentioned the psychiatrists then uh you know like say one of them met with her really shortly after the murder um and had a six-hour interview with her and so he got such a really clear insight into where her mind was at um I think he described her as the most floridly psychotic person that he'd ever interviewed so to him it was really clear that she did meet these criteria for the not guilt by reason of insanity yeah she was sitting actually across from me so I could see her the whole time I didn't get a, a really strong impression of her but I did feel sorry for her I did feel empathy towards her um I didn't say that to my other jurors because I thought they might think okay well you should feel sorry for the person she murdered um but I would think that's not they're not mutually exclusive you know there's not a finite amount of empathy and I did feel sorry for her because she was obviously suffering and you know when you're hearing about the kinds of delusions that she's dealing with or was dealing with it sounds like a terrifying world to live in um, so I did really really feel sorry for her to you know hear about all that but they told us certain things that that she had explained about her own life um, including her own history of of mental health or mental mental illness um which was also something that some of the jurors wondered about because she didn't have a long history of oh she's been meeting with psychiatrists or oh she's been seen by these doctors but that's because she was homeless and i think that's just showing how that that that's very common that people fall through the cracks 
Um, so I I wouldn't see that as, oh, she has no history of mental illness. I would say she has no history of being treated properly for her mental illness because she was falling through the cracks. And, and I did wonder, would we say when we're deliberating, I wondered, oh, are we all going to just agree straight away? Because you know, I thought, well, we should have a bit of discussion or a disagreement for the sake of fairness, make sure that we're not missing anything. And that is what it, what ended up happening, because there were a couple of people who were either uncertain or had their doubts about this, you know, her, her meeting the criteria for not guilty by reason of insanity. So we did an anonymous vote and it was, you know, like we had a bit of discussion and then did an anonymous vote. And then it was 11 votes for the not guilty for reason of insanity and one for guilty as far as I can remember so I had to kind of you know discuss that a bit more then um, because we had certain criteria you know for example that the person had to be suffering from a mental illness which we all agreed she was but then there were three different criteria that she had to meet one of those three and so say one of them was that the person had the capacity to stop or didn't have the capacity to stop themselves you know so we discussed that because one person was thinking well she did have the capacity to stop herself because you know she stabbed him in the head and then she left and came back to it and you know dismembered his body she could have stopped I saw it more as well that's us thinking of that from a maybe sane brain that oh I shouldn't be doing this I should stop now you know I think it's more about her capacity like the the accused her capacity to make that you know you need to stop doing this was so impaired that that ability to make that judgment was so impaired by her mental illness that she didn't have the capacity to to stop what she was doing my own process it was you know I was trying to think okay what might be the evidence that she's not insane like what have I got to go on there if that was going to be another option and all I could come up with it was that well she would need to be an Oscar-winning actress with an encyclopedic knowledge of schizophrenia and I don't think that's probable and um, so I think that it's safe to to say that the people the experts that met with her know what they're talking about. Guilty was a potential that you know we discussed and debated a little bit um, but not guilty by reason of insanity seemed to be the thing that made the most sense it's what all the psychiatrists and guards and barristers seemed pretty clear on um, the third option of not guilty wasn't really an option yeah I think it was about two, hour, two hours that we came to the unanimous decision um, okay you might cut this bit out because it's kind of embarrassing it's, it's, it's pretty embarrassing the, uh, the four person wrote the wrong verdict on the piece of paper um so she just wrote not guilty which wasn't really the option <laughs> you know it was the one that we couldn't really go with of the three three options we had so she she wrote down not guilty I think just assuming I know what she meant <laughs> but um so you know, she handed it in and they read it out and we all started looking around at each other. Like, they just say not guilty. And um, then one of the barristers just stands up and says, Judge, I wonder if you might just excuse the jury for a minute. <laughs> so we all went outside and, you know, we were talking to her going, did you just write not guilty? She was like, yeah, yeah. Like, 
you need to write down the full verdict. And she was like, oh, I, th I, th I thought they know what we mean, you know? Um, so then we, we went back in and the judge just had to go, did you mean not guilty or did you mean not guilty by reason of insanity? She was like, my apologies. Yeah, I, I meant that. And it's like, okay, can you just write that down on the piece of paper? So, oh my God. It was the most, towards the end, just after the verdict had been given, the judge just mentioned about, you know, the, the victim and, and, you know, condolences to his family. There was one woman who came to it every day um, she came to the, the course every day and she nodded. So I gathered that she was definitely um, like, I know that his body was identified by his sister. So I guess maybe it was his sister, but I don't know. It did also strike me that that would be so difficult to sit through because, you know, you're listening to the graphic way that your family member was killed. And you're also hearing, you know, that he was, this bad person as well in the eyes of you know like the the accused said oh he's the devil I'm glad he's dead things like that so you're hearing you know his character being you know kind of attacked and then talking about the crime that was committed so I imagine it would be so difficult for them to actually sit through that they, they don't even they just called him the deceased you know they didn't really call him the victim or you know it just seemed very impersonal yeah so I do think it was it was very different to how uh the mur a murder trial would usually go um so yeah it definitely it did feel a bit like wow who even is the victim you know we didn't know a huge amount about him um but yeah I was glad that the the judge did just sort of call that out and mention it the judge kind of said you know I can't really do anything other than offer my thanks and to give you 10 years off, you know, so you don't have to do this again for another 10 years. But no, I, I was thinking that, that there should be just some little kind of where you can go if you do need support because, you know, it's a difficult thing to, to sit through and to listen to. Just even a little leaflet and says, here's the number for Samaritans or whatever else. Just, some, you know, some direction of, yeah, this was difficult and you may want to, to chat about it with someone. Trial number five ended in a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. As a follow-up question, I asked juror five if she felt that a jury trial was appropriate under the circumstances of her case. Like it didn't really seem appropriate uh i think that who who are we people who have never met her most of whom probably have no experience or expertise with mental illness who are we to say that she was suffering from mental illness i think that that decision could or should be made by experts you know people with various degrees that know how to diagnose and support someone with mental illness I think it definitely could be you know a decision that's made by them but then I suppose if it comes into you know special cases for certain people maybe it's you know maybe it's just fairer that everyone gets the same thing everyone gets the same treatment I'm interested to know what our jurors thought of the barristers that they were presented with 
Were they swayed by their arguments? And how do they rate their technique? The lawyer for the prosecution. He he was really funny, actually. He had a real, like, shtick. Like, he had this whole thing going on where, like, he kept... um, he kept offering his witnesses water. So I remember specifically the, the victim's girlfriend, he kept like stopping proceedings to check she was okay and like very ostentatiously going and getting her water and stuff. Like, okay, I say he kept doing it. He probably did it like twice or maybe three times. But I definitely think there was some kind of, the way he conducted himself in general, like he had quite a, just kind of like, I thought he just watched a, uh, watched To Kill a Mockingbird a few too many times or something you know he just had this real like he was kind of like he was in a play or something so I thought he was do you know like I wouldn't say a gobshite but gobshite adjacent anyway whereas the lawyer for the defense was way more straightforward seemed a bit bored to be honest like he was definitely just like at work like he was just a day, another day at the office you know now, in the old days, I remember seeing a number of very famous barristers who used to always uh, strike a pose looking at the jury while they asked questions of the witness. Um, but it was certainly not a, tr- a style that I've adopted, um, and you don't see it very often anymore. Uh, all eyes on the jury while questioning the witnesses. It, it, it might look dramatic and good for, for TV, but, you know, I think Barris just get stuck into running the case. I think they were all excellent performers, you know. Um, there's a job on Broadway for all of them, definitely. Um, they, you know, I don't know if they teach that at uh, Barris' school. <laughs> Their ability to appeal to you and to, you know, come across as charming, to lull you into a, you know, a sense that there's a friend, you know, there's a rapport, there's a friendship that you're the same as them, you know, but, you know, did I like them? Well, because I, because I know they're trying to change my, what I'm thinking, I, no, I didn't like them at all, because even if they're, I guess, even if you agree with them, you always wonder, well, am I agreeing with them because I do agree with them, or have they just done a really good job of convincing me to think what they want me to think so it's 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 yeah it's a bit of uh yeah it's you 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 step into that courtroom knowing that your people are trying to manipulate you right so you've got one person trying to make you think this and you've got another person trying to make you think that and you've got to be kind of be really mindful of that uh and take a step back to think all right I, I can't believe everything I've heard or a lot of it maybe um, so I need to try and make my own kind of uh, assumption about this and my own, um, you know, the, the, the barristers come up to you and speak to you, they look at you in the eye, they're, they're, they're trying to seduce you, right? <laughs> so um, you, you do feel like you're kind of, you're like a commodity, aren't you? You're, you're, you're jury meat, you're kind of being passed around, you go here, sit here, you know, you're amongst people doing the, the, the real work you know so you you do you do feel kind of like yeah in, in kind of imposters or just kind of bystanders in in a, in a world you don't fully understand I guess the prosecution and the defense lawyers know each other right they're colleagues um so they have engaged small talk they know one another probably by first name yeah they're colleagues so um that was quite surprising in a way because you think in your mind they're arch enemies and you know they're fighting tooth and nail against one another to to win 
Um, so yeah, it was quite almost disconcerting in a way to see them suddenly then, you know, game face on the case has begun, and now they're now that now they're pitted against each other. So I was entertained kind of by them, you know, the way they their goings on and their costumes. I was like, whoa, what the hell? This is this is crazy, you know. It's, this is this is crazy. I can't believe what I'm seeing. The, the 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 guy for the defense was uh he was quite captivating because I don't think he had much to in the in the accused's defense to to you know points to kind of dole out but he had his way of kind of uh, whatever way he would look at us it's his way you know it, it's just years of experience of him trying to get you know work his magic and uh, he was quite. He had that kind of allure to kind of go, you'd be listening to him, but then it didn't weigh up, you know, what he was saying. If you are in a very difficult case where you have a difficult case to defend and there's a lot of strong evidence against the accused, um, you're, you're still under an obligation to defend that case to the best of your ability. And it might be difficult and, you know, you might be clutching at some straws in relation to, uh, you know, evidence and you, you're always acting on your instructions. And that doesn't mean that... Um, you're going to win the case. It just means you're putting your best case forward that you can that you can put forward. There's a little bit more theatre involved in jury trials because you're you know you're playing to a a gallery of twelve individuals who have come for a um not that they've come for theatre but they're expecting a little bit more and they're you know they've watched television they've watched the movies and they're expecting a little bit of drama from the barristers who are in the case and we try to live up to it a little bit I think most of us and one thing that I often do is I try to use examples from movies or TV programs to just bring a bit of realism to my closing speeches or just to make it a little bit more live for the jury. So you, it, your speeches are always better if you're a bit more well-read and you've, you know, sort of movies that are out there so that you can kind of bring it to life. That's what I try to do sometimes, you know. What does it feel like when the trial is ended and the jury is excused? And is it easy to just let go and say goodbye to the other jurors? It was a real strange feeling to kind of walk out of the court in the sunshine and be done from our point of view. Obviously, there's a lot, a lot of people with a lot more perspective on what that's like from that courtroom than, than just us and the jury walking out. But, um, you know, for us, for sure, there was, you know, there, there was quite a lot of things pent up, I guess, that, you know, you've gone through this experience with these with these other people um yeah maybe there was there was half of us um went 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 out for a drink just down the road before just saying goodbye because yeah there was an acknowledgement that it wasn't we weren't just like just suddenly there uh, you know going through this experience with these people and then just 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 completely separating but you know we had this kind of acknowledgement of it together and then and and then parting ways after that as well so it was the most anticlimactic thing ever we all walked out and I was going to turn around and kind of say oh you know just say something everyone just started walking and everyone just walked out went their own ways and I was like okay I'll, I'll just head back to my car then you know it was just so it was as if it never happened just immediately or, or as if we'd all see each other tomorrow I, I I quite liked the the kind of dynamic of the group and um, there was like a sense of camaraderie um, and I felt as though everyone was taking it as seriously as I believe it necessitates, um, while also bringing humour into it. 
you know, keeping it light where appropriate. Um, and I think that humor can be really valuable in building cohesion, you know, within a group. But the jokes, you know, were never about the accused or the victim of the crime or the crime itself at all. They, they were they were a nice bunch now, I have to say. Yeah, they were like, as you know, you can get them from all walks of life going into a jury, on a jury. <laughs> they were all pretty, yeah, on a good wavelength. But uh, yeah, and you obviously you get to know them over the week and stuff. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, we went for a drink afterwards and everything it was like, uh, may have finished quite early on the whatever day it was, and and they just said you want to go. No, I don't think all of us went, but most of us went and. Just went in, had one, and that was it. And I see us all again. And I don't know if I'll ever meet you again, but <laughs> that's what we shared for the week, you know? Because it, it really does take over your life for a week. Yeah, it's just kind of like it's all you really think about when you're, you even go to sleep at night, you know what I mean? Because you're obviously somebody's life in your hands, you know? So when it's over, you, you feel good because you fulfilled a duty of, you know, uh, a civic duty, right? But you also feel a bit hollow because whatever your beliefs about kind of the prison system, you've, you've kind of condemned someone young. Oh, what am I trying to say? You know, you, you, yeah, you've condemned, you've condemned them to a future maybe which is very limited now that they, they're, they're going to serve time in prison. I definitely don't think I felt any regret saying goodbye. I didn't, as a group of people, I didn't particularly like them. I remember just feeling quite, like I say, like, to, to be honest, everything about that experience was a bit grim. Like, there were definitely nice people on the jury, like, don't get me wrong, but there were so many people who I thought were just thoroughly, they're just prejudiced. Like they didn't, they didn't see this uh, heroin addict as being fully human, you know? And like, that's horrible. Like, that's just horrible. That makes you kind of a bit of a shitty person in my view. Thing I did see one of them like the next week actually came into the spire that I was working in. And he just said to me like, I still think he was guilty. And I was like, I still think he was guilty. And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he just left. That was like kind of the closest to a moment of camaraderie that I can really remember. After their first-hand experience with the criminal justice system, we're going to finish by asking our jurors and our barrister if they think juries work. Is it the best way to decide criminal cases? I asked Mr. Clark first. I think they're a great idea because... um... You know, the, 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 the fairness of the system is best seen when the public get to say themselves whether somebody's guilty or not guilty. And, you know, the law is one thing, but the law has to be applied to the facts of a case. And the, the jury have to decide what the facts actually are. And that requires, you know, if you've got 12 people who have had different life experiences and they bring their own common sense to how things are in real life, then it's a bit, it's a more of a, it's a more of a, a grounded verdict because it's grounded in the people themselves. And if you think about it, in times of tyranny, the sort of people that will want, be wanted by a, a, an unjust government is judges that they appoint themselves to decide who's guilty or not guilty. And once you have the public making that decision, that tyranny can't really take root. And that's why if it's in the constitution, it's very, very hard to take it out of the constitution. So we have a system now that is rooted in the people. So, and, and you know, when we were a young state in the 1920s and the 1930s, nobody knew that that was going to last. Um, so by putting that in the, in the constitution, it meant that we were going to have all 
verdicts uh, rooted in the people. And for that reason enough, and sorry, for that reason alone, I think a jury trials are a good thing. And then as well, you know, it, the fact that they are representative of the public, so you have your mix of people on it, um, will, will make it fairer too. As a process, it works as, as good as anything else. Is there something that could work better, perhaps? Having gone through the process, I would probably worry if I was in the situation of, of having my fate decided in that way. Um, you, I mean, you'd worry anyway, I'm sure. But just more that the, the, the dynamic it, you know, is fluid. It could change. There's there's certainly ways that on the same evidence, either verdict could be given. I would imagine, um, just because of the, not just the 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 makeup of the group and the dynamics of the group and and who who takes charge and and who leads the kind of the the, the decision, but also you know, the differences in 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 what the judge accepts, whether it's something unanimous, whether it's a majority, there's, you know, there's a couple of different ways that, you know, it can be considered um, um, and decided on. And that, that, you know, that, that probably would cause me worry if I was in that situation. I'd be like, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of, there's quite a lot of ways that this could go, um, which, which means that this isn't a bulletproof system. I don't think for me. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the as it's designed, it should work. Um, I'm sure in instances um, it doesn't. It's it's based on it's based on humans, and there's always a, a, a substantial margin of error when anything involves humans, right? But I think as a premise uh, and, a, and an ideal as well, um, it does work. Um, you know, personally, my opinion about, you know, prison sentences and rehabilitation of people and, you know, investment into kind of disadvantaged groups and, and helping people avoid this situation in the first place. I'd be way more interested in putting my energy into that as a, as a kind of a duty uh, to my society than, 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 than doing it after they've committed an offence and just kind of condemning them to, um, to prison time and, and to maybe not as positive future. I think it's the only way you can do it, really. There's no other really way, I feel. Yeah, the judge, you, you, just, you just don't know. Like, you know, take a dislike. It's only one person. It's 12 of us, you know, and the majority rules. Yeah, it's 12 of us. And I think that's why they're there, because you can, okay, there might be a little scroll of information that they can pick up upon, which can throw you to a different way. And, you know, that's why there's 12 of us there. If there's one or two, you know, it's... I think it's kind of like a, it's kind of the best bad idea that we've got, maybe. It's better than all the other ideas. If I had to say like yes or no to juries, I'd still say yes, but I was pretty, yeah, I was pretty de depressed by how it had gone on. Cause I, I didn't feel that the jury was I didn't feel like all of my fellow juries were really considering the matter fairly at all. I think they are the best idea we've got. Um, you know, I think obviously, you know, it's not like it all depends on the jury either. Like the lawyers for the prosecution and the defense have to make good arguments um, and have to convince the jury, right? The jury aren't the only variables to consider, I guess. Um, 
but yeah, I think um, I'd be very curious to do it again because I would like, I really want to have a better experience. I really want to like have faith in it. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com Produced by John Roach Thank you to Mr. Seamus Clark And thanks to all of our former jurors And a special thanks to Keen for originally suggesting the idea for this episode